Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. I'm Shireen Hamza. I'm Polina Ivanova. And today we have with us Michael Tworek. Uh, we will be talking about Albertus Bobovius or Bubovsky or Aliufki in Turkish. Michael is a lecturer on history and literature at Harvard University. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Nir. It's an honor to be on the show. So uh, many of our listeners might have heard of this character, Ali Ufki or Albertus Bobovius. Uh, he's kind of well known for translating the New Testament into Turkish, but he was also a musician. He wrote a very interesting treatise on uh, Turkish music, Ottoman music. And at the same time, he was also kind of a well-known intermediary between Latin Europe and the Ottoman Empire. And today we're going to be talking about all this uh, this world of uh, Ali Ufki, of Albertus Bobovius, who he was, where he came from, uh, and how we can use him to integrate the Ottoman Empire into this larger story of early modern Europe. So let's just start with this basic question. Michael, tell us some basic facts about uh, Ali Ufki or Albertus Bobovius, the 17th century uh, translator, musician, and intermediary. Yes, well, Bobovius is quite a fascinating character and really comes from many different worlds. So his mm-hmm. dates are 1610 to 1675. He was born in what is present-day Ukraine in Lviv, but then was actually part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. Um, for those who don't know too much about Poland-Lithuania and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, it's a composite polity of two states, Poland and Lithuania. It's multi-ethnic, it's multi-religious, so multi-ethnic in the sense of having Poles, Lithuanians, Germans, Armenians, Ruthenians, multi-religious. Mm-hmm. What's a Ruthenian? So Ruthenian is basically, uh, some people claim to be the predecessors of modern-day Ukrainians that okay. are based around Lviv, um, so basically northeastern, or northwestern, I should say, Ukraine, and southeastern Poland today. They're often seen as very distinct in terms of language, religion, both Orthodox and Uniate, so Eastern Christians who are in union of the Pope. Okay. So um, he's coming from this world. So, so he's born to a minor, a middling noble family from Lesser Poland that moves to Lviv. Uh, he comes from a Protestant family, from a Calvinist family. Um, and the early years of Bobovius are actually very unclear, even exactly when he is captured eventually by a Tatar raid and sold into slavery to the Sultan. Some people surmise that he had a humanist education, uh, that he was an organist in his church, uh, hence his musical abilities and Mm -hmm. his knowledge of music and notation. Um, So around uh, the 1630s or so, um, when he's basically in his early or late mid-20s, he's captured in a Tatar raid, which is a frequent occurrence in this part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Um, He's sold to Mm -hmm. the sultan, who I believe at the time was Murad IV, and converts very soon afterwards to Islam and takes the name Ali Ufki. Michael, the early 17th century is, of course, known in European history as the time of wars of religion, as the time of the Thirty Years' War. Um, what's going on in Poland at this time? And uh, did Bobovis grow up in the context of um, ongoing religious conflict? So in this particular time, uh, Bobovius grows up in what is a relatively peaceful period for Poland and Lithuania. Mm-hmm. So Poland and Lithuania escapes uh, the outbreak largely of the Thirty Years' War. 
from 1618 to 1648. Um, he lives in a very relatively tolerant environment where Christians of various confessions, um, Orthodox Christians, Jews and Muslims can coexist in this polity. And one of the reasons for that is it's highly decentralized. Huh. So each town or each each nobleman and his property are basically autonomous places. And whatever the nobleman chooses as the religion of the particular place, that usually goes. And there's obviously exceptions to that rule, but for the most part, there's a tremendous amount of peaceful coexistence at this time period that will certainly change towards the midpoint of Bobovius's life, but by that point, he's in Istanbul. Can we say anything about this upbringing in, in, the, uh, in Poland-Lithuania affected uh, Ali Ufki or Albertus Bobovius's worldview? I mean, do we, do we have any information about that? So just in light of his familiarity with Latin, ancient Greek, it's very likely that he received a humanist education in Lviv. So at this time, in the end of the 16th century and beginning of the 17th century, you see a flourishment of different schools on the part of Catholics, especially Jesuits opening up colleges, as well as different Protestants. So Calvinists, Lutherans, um, anti-Trinitarians are opening up these, these schools, these humanistic schools to educate the elite noble elites, for instance, mm-hmm. civic burger elites. Um, in the context of Lviv, very much, very much a very rich, diverse educational landscape where there's a tremendous amount of humanist education going on. And that probably is where he begins and gets a very good um, mm-hmm. preparation in those languages. So once Bobovsky gets to the Ottoman Empire, do you, what, what happens there? What kind of education does he get? And do you think that his background seemed particularly valuable to the people who captured him? I think when he, when he arrived to Istanbul, um, from the sources, he was educated at the, in basically the palace. So in the topic of the palace. Um, very quickly, they realized that he has both a, a gift for languages um, and he's reputed by the end of his life to be able to read and speak and write in 17 languages. Wow. And they also realize that he's an incredibly gifted musician. He is able to very quickly learn many different types of instruments. Um, and he's able also to write music that normally has been transmitted orally or by ear down on on paper, so mm-hmm. to speak, so noted. Mm. Michael, do you know anything about the circumstances of his capture? Is this simply um, an accident? Is it was he simply lucky that he ended up in the top couple of palace and not uh, on the galleys? I I suspect that is. I mean, his capture is not something exceptional. This happened quite often, and in many cases, he's not the only Slavic speaker to get captured and end up in a very prominent position. Um, we have Hurem Sultan, for instance who becomes a very prominent mm-hmm. figure in the 16th century at court. So you do see this this thing, and it's part of a larger, larger, almost demographic shift, I think, has been beginning, is now beginning to be studied much more, is that how do the transfer of these populations through, through raids by the Crimean Tatars hmm. move people into different places. And um, my own research is on learned travel. So I wouldn't normally say that uh, being captured in a Tatar raid and sold into slavery is an ideal form of learned travel, but uh-huh. you, we could say it's a form of forced learned travel, which really allows him to take that <laughs> learning, to take that learning that he already began humanistically right. in, uh, in, in Lviv, Lviv, and then move and acquire other languages. So 
in the sources is often that he's a master of European Asiatic languages. So learning Ottoman Turkish, learning Arabic, Persian, um, obviously knowing also French and Italian, which I suspect he may be, I, I suspect that he learns in Istanbul, actually. Mm-hmm. So he's moving from, he's basically grew up in one kind of multi-confessional, multicultural type of uh, decentralized empire, moving to another uh, rel- uh, quite also multi-confessional empire, which is the Ottoman Empire. And where in this story, I mean, he grows, he, so he goes to the palace, he grows up there, becomes part of the palace service. But somewhere along the way, he decides to translate the New Testament into Ottoman Turkish. And he also writes his musical treatise. And he's in contact with all these other uh, figures. Let's just start with this question, the New Testament. Why, why, why translate that? How did that stuff happen? So this, his, his, his skill of languages, in, which is recognized um, very quickly. So in about, from 1638 to 1657, is basically this period where he serves as a slave at Topkapi Palace. Um, eventually he travels to Egypt, yeah. goes on a pilgrimage, mm-hmm comes back, he's freed during this time, and he becomes, enters into the, basically as a diplomat, and as a diplomat, diplomatic service, mm-hmm. as a translator. And during this time, during the 1650s or so, he begins working as a translator interpreter for the English embassy. Hmm. So this is often seen as one important point of contact for getting in touch with Protestants who are very much interested in biblical scholarship. So Isaac Besser, for instance, who is a chaplain to the English diplomat, helps him get in touch with this project. Uh, Lavinius Varner, mm-hmm. the Dutch ambassador in, in, in Constantinople, who is also a noted um, biblical scholar, Orientalist, right. um, who turns to Bobovius actually for many manuscripts that eventually end up getting transferred to Leiden. Um, so Bobovius is also supplying Varner with absolutely. the manuscripts. So okay. there's already this intellectual exchange of what we would call the Republic of Letters. Um, and I think this is quite important where part of this idea of turning to the Bible as the word of God, translating it, um, which people like Comanius, for instance, Samuel Hartleap, who is in England, see as an important way of, of, of introducing Christianity to the Ottoman Empire. Um, and one actually important thing in terms of thinking about this background, being interested in the, translating the New Testament, is also this very interesting encounter that we have during this time of Mary Fisher in a Quaker, English Quaker, who goes to um, Istanbul to see the Sultan in actually 16, I think it's 1658. And she's received very kindly and she goes back to England and actually writes very, writes very warmly that she was treated with respect. She was treated with consideration in basically telling the Sultan that God told me to come to you to tell you about Christianity. So these are important backdrops to seeing, okay, well, how would Bobovius be involved? And he's seen as this indispensable indispensable intermediary and mediator. He knows Turkish, he knows Latin, he knows Greek, Hebrew. So he knows all this, obviously, sacred biblical languages, Greek, Hebrew, right? So he's, he, and he obviously knows Turkish. So he's seen in these sources as absolutely indispensable. And obviously, he's not the first person to attempt, attempt a translation of the Bible, but 
his translation becomes particularly important, even though it doesn't succeed in being widely disseminated initially and obviously not converting the Ottomans to Christianity, it does become the standard Bible for Ottoman Christians well until the 19th and early 20th century. Um, so the background behind that, obviously, is this belief that you know if you get involved in scholarship, you make the Word of God available on the part of Protestants, this could be a way of converting them or exercising a certain form of power, perhaps, if you like. So here, of course, his background as a Protestant is important, right? Absolutely. So this is a part where where his own background as a Calvinist is particularly important. Um, he's very obviously familiar with the classic, classic reformers like Theodore Beza, for instance, who he cites as an important influence in translating uh, the New Testament. Uh, he also also is is portrayed by these various Protestant figures in the Republic of Letters as a Christian in secret, where that he basically brings up a larger question about conversion and sincerity, right? So he's seen as this reliable source because despite the fact that he's 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 also reliable because he's an actually converted to Islam, he's traveled on the pilgrimage, he knows what it means to live and practice as a Muslim, he's also secretly a Christian who can move between two different spheres, so to speak. But also, in a sense, it provides a reliable intermediary, right? A reliable mediator for that. That Okay, in the end, he's really Christian and hiding, and all he needs to do is go back to England. There's this whole discussion of whether or not he wants to go back to England, and apparently he writes a letter asking to be taken to, to England after the restoration of Charles II, though it never happens. And this is fascinating. I mean, so it sounds like they trusted him because they thought that deep down he was actually still a Christian, that he was an essentially a crypto-Christian. But didn't uh, his conversion, his participation in, uh, in Muslim ritual, and his participation in the Hajj uh, make him out to be like a renegado, a convert, someone who couldn't be, dis- couldn't be trusted? Where, where's the distrust in this relationship? Absolutely. So you, you do have one source from an Italian Catholic, Cornelio Magni, who also turns to him for a description of the Seraglio, of the harem, which he publishes originally in Italian, and then it's translated into German, into French. It, he mentions when he turns to him for this particular description, which he republishes in his own work, he mentions that in trading and invo- involving himself in the exchange of texts and manuscripts of various sorts, that Bobovius traded these works for alcohol. So that he was actually, actually, actually quite an alcoholic and a and a and a boozer. And this is the one account. This is the only place among all of the different various European accounts or these accounts on the part of of of, of learned scholars where uh, he's portrayed in such a really quite negative. He's known as a renegade or renegado, for instance. And this is the one specific instance of them. Most Protestant. Uh, accounts where they mention his conversion, mention the fact that he secretly wants to return to the fold of Christians, to eat, earn his bread honestly, so to speak. Um, but in this particular case, a Catholic representation, maybe this could be potentially a, a certain Catholic pushback against this particular, mm-hmm. as him as a source, right? So given this occasional distrust, did, uh, were the European scholars skeptical of his translation of the New Testament uh, into Turkish? And do we know do we know anything about this? I don't know if you've studied this translation. How good of a translation is it? Um, and to what extent? How did he mediate Christian ideas into into Turkish? What kind of text is this? That's a fant- absolutely fantastic question. Um, 
So the initial response to him as a partner in this translation, this translation project to create a Turkish Bible. Uh, so one Dutch scholar after Varner dies, who is his chief collaborator in this project, is basically seen as, okay, well, I have this familiarity with biblical scholarship. You're this um, foot between Christianity and Islam. Let's create this Turkish Bible together, right? This is a good pairing. This Dutch scholar in reviewing uh, the translation that Bobovius produces, who is also an Orientalist, mm-hmm. um, also knows Turkish very well, says it's very incomplete. It's 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 inaccurate. It minces the nuances, and it's a very 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 harsh condemnation of this translation. Mm-hmm. And he does it so for on on linguistic reasons, basically. Um, the irony of it is that when we look back at scholars who've looked at it today, say that's actually extremely competent, hmm. extremely competent translation, one that's actually quite accurate. Um, and this is even noted in his other works where he translates Arabic terms, Turkish terms. Um, for instance, Thomas Hyde, in his uh, preface uh, to his to, to Bobovius's tract on the liturg- liturgy of, of, of the Mohammedans, uh, says that for the most part, He's only minorly tweaked some of his Arabic translations, but for the most part, he's, it's very accurate and very, very, very literal. Hmm. So he's known as being very, very skillful, despite the fact that this particular person, there might be a variety of reasons why this project falls through, obviously. Financial reasons, um, interest wanes, other priorities, you know, in the part of Comenius and Hartley, right. for instance, come to play. Um, but in some ways, you know, it's in some ways a very much a project that could have taken off had had certain other factors uh, gone to play. I mean, it, and I think you're right that, that this kind of, it taps into this moment of interest uh, of translating holy texts into kind of uh, various non-European languages. For instance, I'm um, thinking of, you know, Matteo Ricci mm-hmm. and his project to translate the New Testament into Chinese and how he does that. You know, what choices does he make in the translation? Uh, do you try to kind of translate into concepts uh, that would seem more culturally familiar or, you know, to Taoist or whatever Buddhist thought or, you know, and how do you take a, even a concept like the word Peter? You know, does Peter is a name, but it also means stone. Do you translate it as stone? Do you try to keep the linguistic, um, do you try to keep the linguistic specificity there or do you just kind of keep it as Peter or something like that? You know, all these different questions that are involved in this kind of cross-cultural translation of a you know, a central text like the Bible. I think I'm, I'm really delighted that you mentioned Ricci because I think one could look at Bobovius and one could ask from his example, mm-hmm. where is the Ottoman Empire and the Republic of Letters? Right. So so where is it? So I would say, I, I would argue that Bobovius is a fantastic example of, of a part of that where you, you know, if you wonder about the Republic of Letters is simply something that's Western European in terms of its center base, you very much see in the case of Bobovius and the circle around him in Constantinople or Istanbul, mm-hmm. very much an important network of contacts, uh, information, texts that are being exchanged. Um, so I think he, in some ways, is a very important argument for, for including the Ottomans as a part of this. And very much this whole project of translation, which is an important aspect of the Republic of Letters as a community of learning, as a, a body of communication, a system of communication, you know, which links Bobovius with Ritchie, with uh, you know Michael Boehm, with, um, with Comenius, and with with other translators in Europe at this time, working on various projects. 
Back to the Ottoman History Podcast. You were just listening to a bit of Ali Ufki's own music recreated uh, in the modern day, or what we think it sounds like. We're talking with Michael Twork on Ali Ufki, Albertus Bobovius, and we are going to jump in to the next round of questions right now. Uh, Shireen. So thinking about the intellectual circle that you're describing around Ali Ufki, what can we say about the way that that influenced his own intellectual production. These scholars from England, uh, these Dutch scholars, these early 17th century Orientalists. Uh, Can we think of Bobovius himself as an Orientalist scholar? I think in, in in one way of thinking, but I think we very much can think of him as an Orientalist. If we consider him as being between two different cultures, um, it becomes rather difficult whether you consider him Ottoman, European, or both. But I think there's certainly a case to be made that he's involved in the development of Orientalist studies, and he mm-hmm. himself is is very much contributing to it. Um, I think very much the interests of English, Dutch, Italian, French scholars in this part of the world drives his own production and his right. own role. So I think very much the fact that he represents the things that make him a very desirable partner in these scholarly activities, right? So he's originally from Poland. So this is something that's emphasized very much, right? His Polish origins. The fact that he was once a Christian or even a Christian in secret also make him a sufficient collaborator in these scholarly endeavors. His place, um, the fact that he's in Istanbul, languages, the fact that he speaks 
reportedly 17 languages and can serve not only as an intermediary, as a translator, interpreter, but also as a facilitator for acquiring manuscripts, whether in Arabic, Persian, Ottoman Turkish, for instance, mm-hmm. for these European scholars who are both present there, but also for those who, say, some of these, these mm-hmm. diplomats who are present in Istanbul represent or want to acquire some for. And Michael, how much do we know about his education in um, education as an Ottoman intellectual? Because perhaps one can argue that despite his religious conversion, he still remains intellectually a European humanist, orientalist scholar who is at home with these genres that he's writing in. Um, but how, is he at home with Ottoman intellectual tradition? Has he studied law, Ottoman sciences? Do, do we know anything about that? I mean, would he be received as well uh, by the Ottoman ulema, the Ottoman scholars? Ottoman Muslim ulema, let me correct myself. Well, I, I think that's very difficult to tell because there's very little sources from, very little accounts from Ottoman sources. I mean, in some ways, Bobovius, the figure, and I use Bobovius in the sense of what is used in, in these, these Christian European sources, is very much a creation, their own creation of him, right? of his, his role in mediating between the Ottomans and European Christians. Uh, in terms of his own encounters, there's a great example of, I think it might maybe address what you're, what you're asking from, from Rickhout, uh, his uh, text on the present state of the Ottoman Empire, where he mentions that he's, when he's talking about ancient philosophical schools in Islam and various mystic sects, he mentions in a, a little example from Bobovius where he mentions his one sec as being Pythagorean or believing mm. in reincarnation. And it's absolutely- So Pythagorean as in an ancient Greek sect. philosophical school. 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 Okay. Exactly. So he's referring to that they practice this, this root of an ancient Greek philosophical school and their belief, and they believe in reincarnation. And he explains that Bobovius related this, this, this encounter that he had with a shopkeeper who was part of this sect. And he, he mentioned that he's visiting the shopkeeper and he sees a black dog that came, keeps on irritating him and he kicks it. And this actually would be, is quite fascinating why, why he kicks it. He kicks his dog and the shopkeeper is absolutely angry with him, turns pale. And Bobovius relates via Rukhout that he notices and asks why. And he re- says, well, we believe in reincarnation and that the dog is an honorable, honorable animal to be recreated as. It's a loyal um, and it shows in some ways, it's, it's, it's quite incredible. And you have to also, you know, obviously have a certain degree of, of, of maybe skepticism because this is related by another person right. about one person's relation of another thing. So there's, you know, basically almost in some ways too many degrees of separation. But I think it reveals perhaps even the portrayal that maybe Bobovis isn't completely at home or maybe there's certain different expectations when it comes to even specific religious or philosophical practices. But is he basically familiar with, um, I don't know, the Hanafi law, for instance? Is this absence of sources on him in the Ottoman archives, in the Ottoman manuscript library, is significant? Well, I think, I think it's more so... Or has no one looked for... I suspect, I suspect this, is, this is a reason why more and more early modernists should learn Ottoman Turkish and go to Istanbul and actually explore this much more. So we know about his Bible translation project, uh, but what, I mean, it wasn't just the Bible. He wrote a variety of other works. So what are these other works and kind of where do they fit into the 
I know, firmament of early modern learning, whether in Europe or in the Ottoman Empire. So he's he's known for, he's obviously, he wrote in Italian originally a description of the harem, the seraglio. Hmm. Um, it's originally in Italian, uh, the Italian, original Italian is lost, but it's now primarily known through its French edition. It was also translated into German as well. And there's also a partial English translation of it. And that served as a primer for diplomats. Um, it was prepared for, for French diplomats, uh, I think, originally, or at least the French translation was. He also produces a English gra- uh, Turkish grammar uh, in 1666. And this is, uh, I believe, at the request of the English chaplain mm-hmm. um, to the English ambassador. So this is, I think, quite also significant and shows you know, an interest in terms of languages, grammars is something very humanistic, but something that's very much an important part of the mm-hmm. scholarly endeavors of anyone who wants to be in the Republic of Letters, right? You produce a grammar, right? So I guess an argument for, for him being an Orientalist, right? Uh, he also translate, qu- translates, quite interestingly, the Catechism of the Anglican Church into Turkish, huh. which uh, seems... I, Particularly strange, I'm not quite sure what the reception was. I think, I mean, because there's no Church of Turkey now that follows an Anglo-Catholic format, I think we can say that didn't really resonate very, very, very highly, but it's still quite fascinating. Um, in addition to these works, he also translates Grotius, Hugo Grotius, um, you know, the very the, famous father it, of international yeah. law. Okay. He also translates Comenius' uh, Doors to, to one of these very famous Doors to Learning. For instance, one of his very important pedagogical treatises into Turkish. Uh, the, the thing that when you look at the presence of Bobovius' works is translations. Many of them are still in manuscript right? and in libraries, whether in Leiden, in Paris, in Istanbul, I presume as well, many that haven't been found or perhaps located. So I think there's, there's a lot of his works that perhaps circulate more informally, not necessarily just in print. So... I mean, what it sounds like is that most of his works are these kind of acts of translation, uh, these acts of an intermediary who's uh, taking uh, either knowledge of Turkish and or knowledge of the palace and uh, gifting it, in a sense, to uh, various figures in the Republic of Letters in Europe, or uh, for, it seems, reasons unknown, taking things like Grotius and other people mm-hmm. and translating that into Turkish uh, but he didn't necessarily write like a legal manual in in like, not not uh, not yeah. that not that I know of, and it wouldn't it, it just doesn't seem to fit right. his background, his education, from what I know. And the patrons of those translations into Turkish are Europeans or are they Ottomans? Do we know anything about the, the, the dedications pro- of those works? That's a fantastic question. Very much, it's the prompting of Europeans mm-hmm. or his interest in in that as well. Absolutely. So. There's one uh, work that you didn't mention in that, and that's his, I just want to, I think we should touch upon very briefly, which is his musical work. Our listeners, some of our listeners might know that uh, traditional kind of Ottoman Turkish Arabic music is not necessarily written down in notation or wasn't so until the 19th century. But uh, Bobovius was actually, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, Michael, but actually wrote down some of this music in notation. Can you talk about his kind of musical treatise and his musical, his acts of musical translation? Absolutely. So really there are two main important musical contributions that Bobovius makes. Uh, the first is basically writing down vocal and instrumental music mm-hmm. uh, that had been played, transmitted in the Ottoman Empire. The second one 
that's that's very very I think quite fascinating in terms of looking at cross cultural exchange between the Republic of Letters, Protestants in Europe, and Istanbul is his what we could call a transposition of the Genevan Psalter. So he essentially takes what is you know the Psalms of David, mm-hmm. uh, translates the music from the Psalter, which many scholars point out have tremendous similarities in terms of what Ottoman Ottoman audiences would have expected musically, in terms of tonality, huh. in terms of um, it wouldn't have been a huge step for him to take it from uh, you know the simple you know vocal tones in the Genevan Psalter the the string guitar backgrounds that go with it often and then transpose it to an Ottoman setting. Mm-hmm. So this is, these are what are seen as his two main musical contributions. One where he codifies and gives essentially, you know, inscribes notation for these, these vocal, these vocal and instrumental music that's prevalent among um, Ottomans and then introducing a fundamental part of Protestant reform, Protestant Christianity into the Ottoman Empire. Who becomes interested in these musical transcriptions, and are they put into practical use at all in in the Ottoman Empire or outside of it? That's a f- really fantastic question. I think some of us, some of us, especially those who study the Reformation, are very curious to find out. Mm-hmm. Um, very much a Genevan Psalter has a worldwide global impact because of missionaries, obviously, who take it with them all the way up into the 19th. You find the Genevan Psalter sung in Sri Lanka, in Java, uh, and Bobovius is often mentioned as part of this wider global spread mm-hmm. of Reformed Christianity. But very often, very little is mentioned at the reception of these particular transpositions. Right. And actually, it would be actually very interesting to explore more in more detail what was the reaction, whether there would have been any notice. Because when you think about the content, you know, it's a monotheistic content. There's no mention of anything particularly Christian in the Psalms of David. And musically, there seemed to be no big advances where, where at least some scholars who studied his, his music very closely, Bobovius's, there wouldn't have been something that would have seemed particularly incompatible with aesthetic or musical tastes hmm. in Istanbul at that time. I think we've touched upon quite a few different things here. Uh, you know, all the different works he's written, his kind of role as an intermediary. Um, there was something that I think you that we were talking about in the conversations leading up to this, which is kind of how the people that relied on Bobovius as an intermediary uh, emphasized his, should we say, trustworthiness. I know we talked about this about in terms of his religion. But can you talk about how kind of his image in the larger European sphere as an intermediary? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think I think one important thing to keep in mind when thinking of Bobovius as an intermediary, as a mediator, as a conduit for cross-cultural exchange is very much that he's on the one hand paying a very playing a very active role in creating mm-hmm. this image whether it's as a Christian, whether it's a translator, interpreter, whether it's a prominent figure as a part of the palace. So he's creating his own image. Very much very okay. much so. Very much when you see anything in terms of his own writings, Latin letter, how he presents himself, he very much presents himself as someone clearly who knows what he's doing, right. linguistically, culturally, religiously. On the other hand, he's very much mediated. Mm-hmm. So how do you justify turning to a person like this for knowledge about Islam? about the mm. Ottoman Empire, uh, 
how do you justify it, right? So the fact that he's a Christian in secret or that he's from perhaps from he's from Poland, for instance, or he speaks multiple languages, he's very much also a creation of himself where it's beyond actually out of his hands. He's mm-hmm. a very much a mediator that's mediated. And I think this is this is one of the, the aspects I think make him absolutely crucial to thinking about the development of Turkic studies, for instance, or Turkish studies, Oriental studies, or even the Republic of Letters, mm-hmm. including including the Ottoman Empire in this this network, is that he becomes almost a a slate for projections of of different wants, mm. desires, aims of European scholars, mm-hmm. European Christian scholars, I should say. And I think the ultimate problem that we're running into here with our understanding of Bobovius um, is that we don't really understand Bobovius within the context of the Ottoman Empire very clearly, right? And we, over and over again, we came back to these questions, what is the reception of his work? Who is he writing for? Is he just writing for the Europeans or is he writing for the Ottomans? Um, Do you know anything about the Ottoman sources um, on Bobovius? Do you know, I don't know if you've done any research in, or if anyone else has done any research in um, in Turkish libraries, in um, Ottoman archives? So I, I should I should add very, very clearly that I am an early modern Europeanist with a tremendous enthusiasm for incorporating the Ottoman Empire in my work. Um, this is one aspect which I think should be done much more. Mm-hmm. Um, my own introduction to Bobovius came from being very interested in putting Poland-Lithuania on the early modern European map. And I realized in order to, to think more holistically about early modern Europe, you can't simply also include Poland, but you have to bring in the Ottomans as well, which are major political, cultural interlocutors, not just with, obviously, Venice, and not just with, say, Spain, but also with Poland and Lithuania. So one thing I noticed approaching is very much that from from Turkish secondary sources that have worked on Ali Ufki, which mm-hmm. is he's primarily referred to. And there's very much almost a split image, right? Right. There's Bobovius for Europeans. There's Ali Ufki for, for a context that you talk about him in, in terms of music and yeah. in terms of the Ottomans. And very much the focus is on the musical aspect of this, right? So his musical contributions and his description of the, the, of the, the Seraglio for right. Europeans. Mm-hmm. These are the two major points of interest. Yeah, that's how I, I, I just knew about him from his music. And then once I discovered this manuscript, this translation of the New Testament into Turkish, I was like, huh. Exactly. And then I was able to connect them. I was like, I, I never thought about the two together as one character. And I think this is where he becomes particularly interesting. On the one hand, as Ottomanists, right. many of you utilize Meninsky's you know, Latin Turkish dictionary. But the major figure behind that dictionary, a major source for definitions, etymologies, was Bobovius. Mm-hmm. Meninsky, obviously, being also Polish extraction, uh, worked, was part of a, a Polish delegation to Istanbul and met Bobovius and consulted him. Mm-hmm. So you obviously see this almost as background when we don't take into account his origin and place. We don't realize all these levels of connection. Even something as simple as looking at, at this dictionary, which is you know a reference book, but what is behind that reference book? Right. And this is where I think Bobovius is particularly interesting. And for me, it's looking at how he's created in European sources. But I think the the challenge I would give to Ottomanists now is let's go and look further beyond just simply the music, mm-hmm. you know, which is well-studied, well-known right. in manuscripts, obviously, in, in, in Europe. But look at Ottoman sources, expand. And this is something I think that brings up a larger question that 
I think Bobobi is rich. What more can we do to get early modernists interested in going and exploring the, the, the Turkish archives mm -hmm. for these things? Right. And it's precisely a way to integrate the Ottoman Empire into the story of early modern Europe exactly. and vice versa. So ultimately, given that at this point um, we don't really have any of those Ottoman sources on Bobovius, and uh, who knows, maybe we'll discover a lot. But given what we have, do you think that ultimately Bobovius was as important in the Ottoman Empire as he made himself seem in the eyes of the Europeans um, whom he served. From the evidence and from the sources that I've, I've looked at, I suspect that he's very much perhaps exaggerating his own importance in some ways or selling his own skills in a way that perhaps isn't, isn't necessarily what is reality. Um, even within the sources you see in one, he's mentioned as the first translator interpreter to Mehmet the fourth, but in other ones, they mentioned that he's a second interpreter So I suspect his own position is very much in flux, and I suspect that he's not as important to the Ottomans as he might maybe portray to his European uh, Christian peers in Istanbul. I suspect part of that is a reason that there's just, just very little that you can find about him within Ottoman sources uh, so that we know of thus far. Uh, I would suspect that if we're going to say his importance is... is rate his importance in terms of, of uh, his impact on the Ottomans, it's really music. And this is where I think really it's, it's taken for. But I don't suspect the impact was immediate. I suspect this is something where people picked up, scholars have picked up, picked up on it kind of in retrospect, so to speak. What is the conclusion of uh, Bobovius's life? I mean, does he just die in Istanbul or does he end up moving to Europe? What's the coda of this story? So he ends up not going to Europe ends up not going to England. Uh, he ends up dying sometime between 1675 and 1677. No one knows exactly when he died, but he's up until the end helping European scholars who are there. Antoine Galan, uh, who is there in the 1670s, actually turns to him for, for lessons in Turkish. Mm. So this is obviously something he's continuing up to the very end. Um, he's very much engaged in helping helping Europeans being introduced, providing them with the languages or the texts that are needed to to transform the field of what we would call now Orientalist studies in Europe. Mm -hmm. So on that high note, I encourage our <laughs> listeners <laughs> to uh, follow the trail of Bobovius or Ali Ufki. Uh, go to the Ottoman archives, go to the manuscript libraries, go to Leiden, Paris, and elsewhere. Uh, and explore this fascinating world of intermediaries that Michael has uh, so graciously shown us. Um, if you'd like to find out more, go to the website. Michael has provided us a short bibliography of some of the works on Bobovius uh, and about kind of intermediaries and the Republic of Letters in the early uh, in early modern Europe. Um, we also encourage you to go to our Facebook group, um, where you can find other like-minded listeners. So thank you again, Michael. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you to all of you.